if you're a qualified fitness professional, studying to be a fitness professional, sector or industry educator, or generally have an interest in the areas of health, fitness and well-being, then this, the Active IQ podcast, is well worth tuning into. We're the leading awarding organisation for the physical activity sector, keen to explore and share topical content via discussion, conversation, debate and Q&A shows, all with great guests and industry experts. This ensures that we give you, the listener, key insights into all things related to health, exercise, nutrition, mindset and performance. So please like, share and subscribe if you find the content of interest and be sure to check out our website at www.activeiq.co.uk. Hello there, it's James Clack from Active IQ here and welcome along to this instalment of the Active IQ podcast where today I'll be talking to a great guest and friend of Active IQ, Kathy Brown. Now for anyone who's unaware, Kathy is a former elite athlete and more specifically a professional boxer with a very impressive record which I'll elaborate on shortly, but also does a great deal of work for charities and drawing on her love of boxing and work as a fitness professional, she carries that through into that charity work. Um, She also is active in the industry with numerous projects, so we get to talk about those as well. And I'll also be chatting to her about how she's dealing with the current whole COVID-19 situation. So first of all, I guess, welcome along, Cathy. How are you doing today? I'm right. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. No problem. Very much appreciated. (laughs) Excellent stuff. It's always good to be able to talk about myself, by the way. It's one of my favourite hobbies. Oh, that's good. (laughs) We'll do lots of that today then. It's all about Cathy. (laughs) No problem at all. So I guess, obviously, we should probably address the obvious. We're all in this period of lockdown due to COVID-19. You staying healthy, safe, well? Yes, well, as, as, as well as we can. We're trying to sort of stick by the rules and go out for my one walk a day for an hour, um, which I've had a double knee replacement in December. So it's um, that walk is invaluable for me um, to get out and move the knees and obviously I'm doing a little bit of training but not going over the top like a lot of people are um just keeping myself I mean I think the main thing about lockdown is maintaining yeah. and not trying to get fitter and stronger we haven't got the equipment at home unless you've got a fully blown Olympic lifting gym in your house um which obviously some people have uh, but generally if we just I'm just maintaining you know doing some body work stuff and just keep myself sane concentrating on Obviously, my other company, Boxology, trying to sort of get that online. Um, so, yeah, I'm keeping myself busy, but not too busy. I'm still spending time for me. Yeah. And I guess that's the important thing, isn't it? Getting that downtime and taking time out for yourself and, and focusing on the things that you enjoy and, and you want to kind of experience to take your mind off of everything that's going on. So, yeah, well, I'm glad you're getting out and knees OK. No, no significant pain, I'm assuming. Well, no, unfortunately, my le- I... I um, some people call it brave and I call it probably stupid now uh, that I had both knees done at the same time. And um, so I'm constantly comparing the right to the left knee and the left knee it hurts much more than the right knee and it clicks a lot and they're squeaking at the minute. So um, walking, I've managed to get up to, I mean, I can walk an hour, but I, I, I limp at the end. So it's not, it's not great to be honest, but um, I'm just trying my best to keep it rehabbed. Yeah. And I guess it's harder for, you know, yourself being a, a professional athlete and, you know, your your history in, in the sport of boxing. How do you cope with that almost um, sort of feeling of debilitation if, you, if you're if you going from looking back to what how active you were and how fit you were to 
you know, having something like that double knee replacement or surgery, you know, that, that must be, is it hard to deal with? Or are you finding that you're drawing on your kind of past experiences and attitude towards being determined and all that, everything that sport brings with it? You know, are you finding it a challenge or do you think sports helped you cope with that a bit more? Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mixture of, um, I, I always talk about my resilience and um, coming from boxing and my mental strength uh, coming from boxing. So anything that you encounter in life, whether it's if we went through loads of IVF and uh, it obviously didn't work and injuries and my mum dying. But I honestly believe that sport is something that you can look into to get you through those hard times. Yeah. Um, on the other side, um, yes, I do find it very difficult because you do constantly compare yourself to how you were when I was a professional athlete. Um, I was like lean and mean, and now I'm a bit fluffy. Um, <laughs> fluffy. <laughs> but obviously, I'd like, I would love to be back in the state I was, but one, it's, it's not healthy to be in that setting. To keep that level of training up is not healthy, and it's not good for you to do that anyway. Um, so I've, I've had to work, and it took me quite a few years to sort of get into the mindset of accepting that fact that I'm, I'm going to be a bit fluffy. And it's fine to be a bit fluffy. And um, I think what makes it harder is that because of the industry that obviously we work in, in the fitness industry, you're surrounded by um, leaned up gods and goddesses walking around the gym all the time. And it's a young industry. Um, not saying I'm old, but I'm 50 this year. So I'm, I'm, I'm all for the industry. But I, I'm still determined to sort of scatter my wisdom and knowledge around the place. Because most of the people I work with, I've been in the industry longer than they've been alive which mm. is quite it's quite funny some days um, but yes I mean on the rehab side of it I mean I've had quite a few operations to be honest I've had two hip operations and I've had a previous knee operation beforehand where I was kind of out on my feet and being injured from boxing I've had to sort of go through this I think injury and there's been a lot of studies done on how, how injury can affect sort of your sort of mental health yeah. especially when you're a professional athlete. So I've kind of, not, I wouldn't say conquered because I haven't quite conquered it yet, but I'm, I'm used to it and I'm used to sort of getting into a sort of mindset where right, I can't do this anymore. Mm. And, and I've been slowly whittling things down. Like I haven't ran on a treadmill or outside for about three years. Wow. I haven't squatted well, with, a, with a barbell. I haven't squatted in any proper squat for about two years because mm. I can't. Yeah. Um, I'll do some little squats a minute. I'm sitting onto my little coffee table up and down with body weight. <laughs> That's as much as I can do. So it's gone from me being able to sort of squat 110 kilos back in the day to me in the living room, just being able to sit down and not even go into a full squat, just like it's above a 90 degree squat onto a table. And that's just as, for me at the minute, it's just as hard. So it, I think we have to adapt with how our bodies are going as we get older and as you've especially pro athletes, you've got to, you've got to adapt to sort of how your body is, is responding to situations. And we have to be kind to our bodies more than anything because you don't want to end up like me with two new knees at 50 years old. So it's, uh, I, I wish it, I had this one. Sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, I think what you're saying is kind of relevant to 
the times we're living in right now as well. You know, people, we were talking about just before we started recording, you know, people jumping on to new exercise regimes who maybe haven't exercised before and the risks that are associated with that. And we, we just need to be honest with ourselves and, and not overdo it and look at it as actually a form of, you know, um, distraction, coping strategy, maybe something different to take our focus off of all of the other doom and gloom stories which are going on in the, in the world right now with 24-7 news and everything else and all the challenges that remote working is bringing for a lot of people. It's 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 a challenging time. And I think what, you, what you're kind of alluding to there is that we need to be realistic and, you know, we will get frustrated at times, but don't overdo it. Don't be too much like a bull in a china shop with this particularly if it's new but you're like me you're probably you know you've been obviously in the industry for a while right so yeah, yeah. You, you, over 20 years uh, so yeah well, so yeah. when you i think it when, when you speak to people like me and you we've been in the industry for such a long time we've been there we've done it we've, we've well for me i've smashed my body up um through boxing um and i've smashed my body up even after boxing because i was just over training all the time so I can understand why people are getting into that mindset of going, panic, let's get fit, or let, let's do this, or let's do that, and let's just go for it. And unfortunately, today, um, everyone's about hit training, cross-training, cross, cross training, hit training, let's smash it up, smash it up, smash it up. And we're just getting, I mean, physios are loving it. Our skills and physios are loving it because they're getting so much more business nowadays. Mm. I speak to quite a few top physios and they're saying, our business is through the roof now because of all this hit training because that's all people are doing. They're not supplementing it with any sort of strength and conditioning to sort of help them sort of get stronger on the joints, etc. They're just smashing hit all of the time. And that, that and that's the problem. But I did the same when I was younger and I had to have the wisdom and knowledge I have now and the pain <laughs> that I've got now. Would I be any different? I don't know, actually, if I'm, if I'm honest. Obviously, I went when you're boxing pro, you have to, to train at a certain level. Yes. But when I finished boxing, maybe not. And before I got into boxing, when I was kickboxing before that, and just getting into the industry, I remember how hard I used to train solid. Mm. I was obsessed. So you kind of understand their mentality, but you just want to go stop. <laughs> it's difficult, isn't it, really, finding the balance? Stop. Yeah, you've got to find that balance. Mm-hmm. So I guess this would be a logical time. Um, so you mentioned kickboxing. For any any of our listeners who who don't know your your track record in the world of boxing, just to kind of identify what you've achieved. So I did a little bit of digging around on you. Obviously, we've known each other for a while um, through through things you've done with us at Active IQ. But um, it's correct. Go on. Sorry, I can't hide from it. I just can't hide. But I'm laughing because I could never hide from anyone um, because I'm just. Everybody just typed in my name on the internet and it's like, <laughs> my whole life story's there and they've all done this, done that. So I could never be a, um, a spy or anything because there's just too much on the internet. <laughs> yeah, that could just be a, a disguise though. It, it could be this kind of up front <laughs> yeah. and maybe you are a spy. <laughs> so yeah, so um, I'll give you a, a quick background without going too depth into it. Um, when I first moved to London, I, got a, I was working for the police actually, uh, as a forensic photographer. And... Um, I worked for them for six years, which was an amazing job. So I used to see some amazing things, um, but <laughs> eye-opening things, should I say. Um, so I was kickboxing whilst I was working for the police. And I started, um, I got into that uh, because I was unfortunately in an abusive relationship when I was 15. Um, and I 
before that nobody was ever going to bully me or uh, abuse me like that again. So I started doing kickboxing uh, for just a little bit of self-defense, so to speak. Yeah. But actually, I found I got so much more out of kickboxing than self-defense. It was it was about it's an empowering thing to do. And when I'm saying empowering, I always want to say that it's not empowering because you can knock people out. It's actually empowering because it's a magical thing that happens inside when you're punching pads and you're doing this physical exercise like kickboxing and boxing, how strong it makes you feel inside. Um, and, you you know, it, it gives me this sense of belonging uh, that I've never had in my life. Um, I was adopted when I was a kid, so I, um, I never felt that I belonged anywhere. But I found this community and um, it really, really helped me with my confidence and self-esteem. And within three months of doing kickboxing, I had my first kickboxing fight. That kind of threw me at the deep end. And the, the, <laughs> I'll say there's nothing that matches the adrenaline of being in the ring and fighting. Uh, it just, it, it's almost like a second to none scenario. Yeah. Um, so the, the adrenaline and, and strength I got from having that first fight, was that was it. I was totally addicted uh, to, to kickboxing. And so I had a six-year career while I was at the Met Police. I, had, um, I was undefeated in 25 fights, a couple of British titles in kickboxing. And then on my last kickboxing fight that I had, um, there was a, a boxing promoter in the audience, and then he came up to me and spoke to me afterwards and said, have you ever thought about going pro as a boxer? And I was like, no. And, I, you know, I was just into kickboxing. He said, look, there's only one other woman. And I've kind of, I don't know, I've done my kickboxing. There were so many uh, belts out there. And, you know, there was like 50 belts, British title belts and 50 world But none of the belts really meant anything. So I thought, well, why not? It's an opportunity that's been given to me. Let's just, just go for boxing. So I decided to give boxing my everything. So I trained to be PT um, back in 98. And... Um, I left the Met Police and left my career. My mum and dad were absolutely devastated. They um, they didn't speak to me for most of my boxing career because they were a little bit embarrassed that I'd give up my career to become a fighter. And um, they were from a, like a strict Catholic family, my adopted family. So, um, But I knew that I was doing the right thing because I found this love and passion for a sport that I knew that this move I was making was right and I went with my instinct I didn't listen to anyone I listened to myself and so I went and got my pro um, license and um, ended up getting a job in a gym work as a personal trainer so I could do both because back in 98 when I got my, my license obviously there was only one other woman who was pro so and there was still a huge amounts of sexism within the industry. I mean, not mm. just fitness industry anyway. There is. I mean, back in 98, it was definitely a big boys club um, and but boxing hugely so. And they were very open about it as well. Yeah. They, you know, they go in the press, you know, you've got the boxing promoters but who is now Kelly Maloney, who was Frank Maloney, yeah. Frank Warren. I don't mind naming them because they, they refused to put me on their shows. They just said that, you know, boxing is not a place for a woman to be. Uh, women should be at home in the kitchen, in the bedroom. Uh, you know, and I had all these things just thrown at me. You're too pretty to box. People wouldn't let me go and train in their gyms. This gym's just for men. Sorry, love. Um, and sponsor, people would not sponsor me to, to fight. And so I ended up sort of 
getting um, friendly with a lot of the gangster guys who used to run boxing shows. And they ran, they were all sort of above board shows, but they just loved it so much that they, you know, they ran all these little dinner shows where there was like loads of cigar smoking back in the day. Yeah. And um, so that's when my career kind of started, was fighting on all these cigar fueled gangster shows. And I had to sell enough tickets to sort of cover. Um, I had, we had to get my opponents over from Europe. So I had to pay for her purse, her travel accommodation, and her trainers to come over, et cetera. I had to sell enough tickets on that to get on the show, which was fine. I just sort of got, got all my mates to come down. And it kind of started from there. And then I just loved it so much. And then I felt like I really needed to prove a point to all these people who were saying, you can't do that. You shouldn't be doing that. Like, or even my family was like, oh, this is really embarrassing on the family. And I had so many people against me doing it. And I just thought, you know what, I'm going to prove everybody wrong and I'm, I'm going to really put my head down and really make this work for me. And again, it went back to sort of me locking into that sort of resilience and being in that abusive relationship where I'm not going to be bullied and I'm not going to be controlled like that anymore. So um, I put my head down and although I was pro for 10 years, I got ranked number three in the world at flyweight. And I got the first ever English title won in this country. And I won the European title as well. I won the English title, funny enough, on my last ever fight because um, there were obviously not enough English or British women fighting at that time. So obviously through my 10-year career and I was fighting in Germany and Italy and we were shipping in sort of European women for me to fight. So then obviously there was just enough women in the country uh, when I retired a couple. Um, there was one woman who was heavier than me and the British Boxing Board of Control made it said, like, let's create this title. It would be the first English title fought for. And um, so I went back and for my last, my last fight, I went back to do an English title, even though I had the European, I was ranked number three in the world. But it was kind of a, it was kind of a meaning, it was a status, it was a, a really big thing for me. And that was my last ever fight. And then... Um, I had to retire, unfortunately, and as soon as I wanted to, my physio was really good and I had really bad neural damage in my neck. And this is when it goes back to the, our conversation earlier about injuries. And um, because of the neural damage in my neck, I had to retire because otherwise it would have just been irreversible. Yeah. I was blacking out a little bit. You know, there'd been a few fights that I'd had that when I fought for a world title in Germany, um, it was quite a heavy fight and had nine bleeds on the brain and mm. So, and, you know, I'd, I'd broken my hand in a fight, I'd torn calf muscles, I'd fractured my pelvis. So I was getting all of these injuries, which is building up and up. My body, you could see, it was just weakening. So we had to make, I had to make a really bad decision, um, which felt bad at the time um, to retire, uh, which obviously now I'm really proud of myself for being strong enough to be able to do that because obviously I wanted to carry on fighting. And if you speak to any top sports person, anyone who's taken away from their sport without control, they get you hit depression and you you you, you go into these dark holes where you don't know what to do. And um, and that's where I went. I went into a dark hole. I started to hate boxing. I started to hate. I hated women who box. Really? <laughs> yeah, I went into this. Yeah, I went into this horrible realm. And and when I was teaching, so. When I was younger, I was quite an angry little girl. Um, I think that's because I didn't understand about being adopted and I didn't understand how I was feeling. And back in the 70s and 80s, you, you, 
weren't encouraged to talk about how you're feeling about things. So I found this little angry little girl was coming out again. I was hating everybody. I was getting losing my temper with people in my boxing classes if they dared ask me or sort of dare ask me a question or dispute a thing I was giving them to do. I just lose my temper, and um, I was kind of getting quite scared because I was like, I can't live life like this. I'm gonna I'm gonna get locked up or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I started to study sports psychology. And I started, then after that, I studied cognitive behavior therapy because I needed to understand how my mind was working. And I thought, well, if I'm, I'm going through this, I can't be the only person that's going through this. You know, you retire from a sport and you, you're hitting these real horrible mental dark holes because you, ha- you have to retire. And then what do you do now? So then I started doing that and I found that I was attracting a lot of clients who needed um, not just boxing to keep physically strong, but boxing for mental strength. And I found that my CBT therapy, what I was learning was cognitive behavior therapy, was just going hand in hand with the the training that I was doing with my my clients. I was doing a sort of a, a bit of a unique thing of doing a little bit of therapy with them if they needed it, giving them some homework to do, then training them physically. And I found that the, the results I was getting were, were great. Like, you know, people were, were, you know, I was getting people off antidepressants. I was getting people off, you know, um, high blood pressure tablets. And the, the people were coming back to me thinking, oh, my God, you've really changed my life. And that was giving me such a purpose and such a buzz that I was helping these people that I felt really good about myself mm-hmm. because I was then using that so I wasn't angry anymore because I felt good about myself because I was helping people I was using boxing and then I was using therapy so that's kind of where I went after boxing and I've kind of zipped through my boxing career you probably won't ask questions I've just gone and this is another thing I did no not at all it's really interesting I did t- I was totally on my favourite subject <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah so that's sort of basically um, on our team when I got my pro boxing, I just started working at Third Space. That's where Third Space came in. And I've been working there for what, 18 years now. That's a long time in, in this industry to stay at one place. Yeah, it was Third Space. Um, they were really good. They were really supportive through my boxing career. And then they got bought out. And then they got bought out again. And they've been really good because they kind of, they support me as a person. They support sort of the boxology I do, which I you know you ask some questions on, but they support sort of, you know, I, I teach boxing now. I've got classes which are always full. I've got clients coming at my ears. So, like, for them, they want to keep me there because I'm, I'm also, I've got this sort of following of clients. I've had, I've had clients for 14 years, you know. I've got a really, really high retention of clients. And I really believe it's because of, rather than just looking at them as, a, as someone in front of me and I just give them a bog standard program that everybody gets, they get bespoke programs and they change all the time and I do therapy with them and, I, you know, I really help them, you know, outside of, of me just training them outside, like, you know, especially during this time. There's a lot of my clients aren't doing training with me or even online training, but I keep in touch to see how they're doing mentally, how you're doing, you know, took over some funny things and give them some advice and stuff that they can buy to do on their own, you know, and, and it's, it's going above and beyond uh, with your clients for retention as well. So that's why 
third space has been a good move for me because they, they, you know, they look after me and also I've got my clients who I love. I'm there for my clients rather than anything else, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, you talk a lot about this kind of using your, your skill set, knowledge, experience through your CBT in work with your clients. I'm a huge believer, you know, about this almost holistic approach to people. People might come to you thinking that they want to start exercising or start working with a PT for X reason. But actually, often when you start scratching below the surface, there's a lot more there and they don't even yeah. realise it a lot of the time. I wonder how much do you find that you use that those CBT skills, that training that you've had with your clients without them even realising it? Every day, probably. Yeah. To be honest, it's um, it, I, I do. I use CBT without people even knowing it because you know people don't even realise, and they they'll come with a problem. Go, oh, have you ever thought about doing that? Or you know, I'll give them it. Oh, amazing idea! I didn't even think about that. And they go off and do it, and they they don't even think that I've just given them a little bit of like CBT therapy advice, mm. and they come back, going, oh my god, that really worked! Thank you so much. And so you know, it it. I take a, a extremely holistic approach to every single person I train, and but I'm also I don't just take on anybody um, as clients because I need to be able to gel with that person. It's an hour with that person is a long time if you don't gel or yeah. haven't got respect for that person. I mean, I'm because I've been in the industry for a long time. Um, you you can be confident like that to know that I'm not just going to take on everybody because yeah. I know I'm not. If you just take on everybody, I'm not going to get the same effects from everybody no. because some people might not resonate with me and, and vice versa. So I think as personal training wise goes, I think a, a lot of personal trainers have got to be a, a bit more confident with going, actually, this person's not going to work with me, but I'm going to pass them on to this trainer instead who I know will work better with them. Yeah. And I'll do that a lot. I'll, I'll take someone on, I'll do a session with them and go, actually, do you mind, I'm going to pass you on to this other person. I feel they're going to work much better with you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think because obviously my, my way of training would not work for everybody. No. Some people want to come in at the gym and just get smashed. Yeah. <laughs> I have got one client who, who um, does want to train really hard <laughs> and doesn't really want to talk about much um which is fine um but i've been training them for about 10 years as well but uh, but we've also got a good relationship outside of um outside of training yeah. so i'll probably do some therapy with them outside when we're not training you know so um do you do you find yeah, that that's you... sorry do you find that that's something that you've managed to kind of evolve to be able to do that because of your, your length of time in industry and your experience, or was that something that you did at the the kind of start of your fitness industry career where you were, you were saying, actually, I don't think we're the right fit. Um, I think so-and-so is better. I just wonder whether it's something that's kind of evolved. And as you've got more experience, better, broader client base, et cetera, that you've been able to do that. Um, Cause I hear a lot of people talk about that and as advice for PTs and it's, I think a lot of PTs are nervous that they haven't got the client base initially to, to allow them to do that. Just wonder what your thoughts were. Yeah, um, at the very beginning, I think you've got to take on everyone to, to get that experience and yeah. being able to train. Um, I don't think, I mean, there's only so much at personal training school or sports science university. They can teach you about human interaction. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and so I think 
a, a start of any PT's career, I don't think any personal trainer could be in a position at the beginning of their career to know who's going to work with them and who's yeah. not going to work with them. It, that's an evolution thing of, of working with people, and that's where you can read so much in a book, but a book to me does not give you, it, it doesn't give you sort of wisdom at all because you, you've got to be able to coach and you've got to be able to sort of <clears throat> develop sort of your skill set on and knowing how people respond on human behavior and, and that takes years to build up yeah. so no i definitely didn't have it at the beginning of my personal training so i don't think anybody should have no, I um think. i think if people at the beginning of their personal, well, i'm not taking on him him and him then they're fools because they're not going to learn from that you've got to learn you've got to take on all these different clients you from you know, female and male and different needs and different wants, whether it be sort of, I want to get slimmer, I want to get bigger, or, you know, I want to get sports specific. You've got, to, you've got to work with everybody as much as you possibly can at the beginning of your personal training career to know who you work better with. Otherwise, you, you can't know that from reading a book. It's impossible. Yeah. I that's my I, opinion. No, I completely agree. Um, you know, I used to, when I was teaching fitness qualifications you know day one of the course you'd always ask what people's kind of objectives aims career-wise and the amount of it that would be very kind of narrow in terms of the kind of clients they they want to work with or mm. willing to work with and it's just like you're gonna have to broaden that up quite significantly particularly in the early days um, and not just you know to earn a living but to, to gain that experience like you mentioned it's, it's invaluable different people different walks of life different experiences yeah 100 percent Totally agree and also, that. as you know, like everybody responds differently. You know, like Robert Fleming's VARC model of, of, uh, of, of us, when we're doing our boxology courses, I speak a lot about, you know, you've got, you can't, one one client or one person in your class might be visual, one, you know, might be better to be sort of read and write. Some people might be auditory. So you, you've got to be able to, to conquer that. You can't train everybody the same way. Mm-hmm. And you're never going to get that from just, sticking with one type of person you're never going to get that ability to be able to get the best out of people because how you if I was training you James I'll be training you you know I'd get to know you and I'd get you know during our first few sessions I'll get to know I can see how you're responding to where I'm explaining things and, and say there's certain things that you might not be getting that I might have to go and find a new way of explaining it to you or showing you um, and you know you've, you've got to be able to adapt to each person that's put in front of you. I'm not saying that, you know, you could put anyone in front of me and I can train them because mm. I've got that experience. But what I'm saying is that I don't necessarily want to train every person that's put in front of me because, one, I'm not going to get enjoyment out of it. And therefore, if I'm not going to get enjoyment out of it, they're not going to get enjoyment out of it. Sure. You know, um, so I think, you know, yes, I can train anybody. Not a problem with that. I'm saying that I wouldn't be able to train someone who's gone for a bodybuilding competition. I wouldn't be interested either in doing that um, because it's just not my forte. So I would definitely give that to somebody else. But generally, you should train most people. Um, You know, you should be able to train who's been put in front of you. And obviously, personal interaction is where you get the best out of people. Wow, that's really insightful. Some of the stuff you mentioned there, and I'm really interested. Maybe another day we we'll do ones on CBT specifically, and it's yep. it's kind of relationship with the work that you do, how you use it as a PT and in the fitness industry. I think that'd be quite an interesting thing to yeah, explore yeah, that further. Would do that. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, one other thing I, I read about you, you sailed the Atlantic as well. Slight change of subject, <laughs> oh, yeah. but is that, is that yeah, right? I told you. <laughs> 
So yes, it is right. Um, <laughs> I haven't been asked about that for a long time. Um, when, did, when did you do that? Oh my God, this is, I can't remember what year it was now. Hold on a minute. Um, it might have been 2005. Wow. I always forget what year it was. But um, so basically, the BBC um, was doing a documentary called The Challenge. And the, basically, it was that they wanted to take, I think it was five athletes they chose, five athletes who were top of their game. So there was like different people from different disciplines. And they, they what they wanted to do was give you a new discipline and you had four months to learn that new discipline and then compete in that discipline. And um, mine was obviously sailing. And um, you don't find out what you're going to do. They just kind of give you this envelope and then you open it up on camera. And I was like, oh, my God, um, I really don't like the sea. Um, and, you know, when generally when people go on holiday, they go on the sea. I never go on the sea. It, it scares the hell out of me all them because you can't see what's underneath. And I don't like that. So um, <laughs> I'm not a strong swimmer. I'm just not a water baby. So they, I went down to um, cows and did their training down in cows. And I, um, I love white. I did sort of the BT Global Challenge yacht training. I went and did the first two legs of the Volvo Baltic race, um, Copenhagen, um, as part of my training as well. And then the, sort of they give me four months. And then they flew me to um, Rhode Island. Uh, there was a, I hadn't met these people. They flew me out there, and then I was to meet a team of three people. And what we were, what our aim was, was to sail from Rhode Island down to New York, Needles, and then across the Atlantic the wrong way to Falmouth, and attempt to break the world record. Wow. So we had this gutted out Pindar yacht, um, which is like the Ferrari of the sea. So I mean, when we're talking gutted out, I mean there was nothing underneath. Like you had no cabins, there was no toilet. It was like an empty shell underneath. We had like a, a, a little laptop where we did our navigation and we had a little gas stove um, and a box of freeze-dried food. It's literally all we had under there and a hammock, one hammock. And um, we did this. It was six hours on four hours off shift and we sort of take turns to sort of sleep and we had the sales there and we sort of, yeah, we, we attempted to break the world record. So it was, um, I learned quite a lot about myself during that. It would end up being two weeks. It was supposed to be two days. I'm um, sorry, two days. What am I about? That would be it's some be world eight, record. <laughs> two days. It's supposed to be eight days. And, um, but we, we hit really bad storms in the middle of the Atlantic and, um, we actually nearly died. And it, it the, the boat nearly capsized and oh our mainsail ripped in templates. We lost. Vinica. so we had to drop all the sails and literally wait out the storm inside the shell of the boat until the storm had passed and when the storm passed then it was like it was like hours and hours and hours and we um had to then sort of sew up the sails and you know and we, we there was no helicopter sort of saving because we were, we were so far from land mm. that obviously helicopter wouldn't be able to get there. And we didn't, obviously, the backup boat would not be able to stay up with us because we were, we were, I think we were hitting about 25 knots. Um, so we were on a, we were on our own, basically. And um, and obviously the storm so happened to happen in the middle of the night where it was pitch black. So you couldn't even see an arm's length in front of us. So, um, yeah, I thought I'd broken my back as got, I got thrown against the, um, the boat. Uh, where I'd hit the sort of um, one of the part of the boat, I'd thrown down, and 
um, the helmsman went into the helm, and yeah, we we um, were some had some injuries on board, um, but then we just sort of waited out the storm, and then it added quite a few days onto our trip because we lost the wind then, and we ran out of food, and then luckily I was I say luckily I was seasick really badly for two days and vomiting so much um, that we had a little bit of food left from that because I didn't eat for two days, yeah. so we had a little bit of food there, and then. Um, we lived on snacks until we got back to Falmouth, but it's one of the best things I've ever done. And it, it goes back to locking into sort of the boxing, the boxing mental state and going, right, you just got to get on. This is, you know, we don't really think about we're going to die. You think, right, we need to put our heads down, we need to get this thought back on and et cetera. So, yeah, there was, um, I did learn a lot about my, my own resilience on that and realised how much I'd learned from boxing. I can imagine you felt quite exposed and, and vulnerable in a situation like that. I mean, it sounds like some sort of Hollywood movie script, <laughs> you know, when you describe <laughs> yeah. it. But um, I kind of think almost the things that you learn from that, do you, it's quite easy, you know, we always go on courses and things and you think, oh, I'm going to use that, I'm going to do that, or I'll put that into play. And then a week goes by and you've kind of almost not done anything with it and you've forgotten about it. Did mm. you, are there things that you took from that and you think, and you look at it and, you, and you're still using it now, you're still applying it now, it affects or oper- makes um, the way that you operate in terms of work, personal life, etc. different in some way? Um, I mean, one thing I wish I'd done was, again, you're talking about you, you go on courses and then you don't retain, which is which has happened a lot. Um, I forgot a lot about saying, you put me on a boat now, I'll, I'll be a bit lost. Mm. Um, I wish I'd almost done my Yacht Masters, but saying that, then if I had, then... I'd have forgotten it because it was years ago, and I'm not I'm not actively practicing it every day. So on the sailing side, I, I'd lost a lot of that um, about the knowledge. Yes, I know a bit, but not enough. If you put me on a boat and gone right off we go. Um, but um, in terms of application, mental application, yes, I, I I use that all the time. And about you know that I could use my mental strength to get to really heavy fights you know not not all fights went my way you know and there's sometimes where I mean I never got knocked out in boxing I never hit the canvas but I was out on my feet and you have to kind of dig into this depth that not many people have got to be honest and I actually just I truly believe that it, you have to have been through something really heavy in life to be a, a good sports person does that make sense? I don't know why I'm just throwing that out in the wind there, but to to be able to have a, a drive and a why and a determination comes from something really deep inside of you. And boxing, I had that I had that deep drive and determination from boxing to like to keep me going. And even when I was out on my feet in fights and and I was injured and hurting, I had that dig inside to not give up. Yeah. So I transferred that onto sailing and that shows me that I can transfer that boxing mentality about not giving up and keeping going onto anything that I want yeah you just got to lock you just got to lock into it and you I always say to my clients you've got to have a why why are you doing it if you haven't got a why there's no point because no. you if you haven't got a why you're going to give up everybody will give up if you haven't got a reason why and um so the sailing wise yeah I've got, it made me realize that I could do anything I want to <laughs> and I can transfer from my boxing onto anything I want to. Um, so for me and for my clients, my, don't 
you know, you can go and do something totally different than what you're doing now. It's even like going from sort of being a, a forensic photographer to a, a personal trainer was a totally different career change for me. And I studied photography for four years at university. Yeah. And, you know, I give it all up. I don't yeah. do photography now, even though I'd like to, but I haven't got time. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, you, you, you can apply yourself onto anything you want to do. If you really want to do something, you can do it. Mm. And I guess, so is that kind of, I guess, looking to the present, really, is that how you formed Boxology and the other projects that you work on now? Um, is that kind of come from wanting to keep that love of boxing there, but feeling like, you know, you can take on anything and why not? I could do this as, as a profession. It could be my business. Is that influenced yeah, that in a lot of ways? I um, I got to a stage where, um, you know, I've been teaching boxing for for years, got about twenty odd years. I've been teaching boxing. I've been, and I, you know, with my, my background in fighting, I felt there were so many people wanting to do boxing in the gym, and I could see so much really, really bad pad work, and you could see their injured clients, and I just, and I'd sort of gone away, and I thought, you know, we've got to put something together um, for this, and it was kind of, it was on my mind that we need to put something together of helping people hold pads because people would come going, oh, can you give me a, a couple of free free PT sessions to help me hold pads? And these were coming from trainers. I was like, well, I haven't really got the time to give it away for free because mm-hmm. my hours are filled up with clients. So I decided I would develop a, a course. Now, um, my dad died and um, it was a perfect time for me to sort of concentrate on something else because obviously my mum, was unfortunately had dementia and I had to put her in a home which killed my soul but um, uh, she, um, I had to focus on something so I decided to throw myself into boxology so I, I created the trademark and I started creating this course I got all the course content together and it, was, it, it looked brilliant and then sort of I came to sort of speak to sort of like active IQ etc and obviously there's certain things you need to put in place like you need to have a manual um, etc and I thought okay let's get on the manual so I started writing the manual and then I realised actually I'm putting so much information down in this manual I may as well make it as a standalone book and so I really sort of threw myself into like round one boxology round one which is just your basics your principles about boxing and I wrote a book to go with the course and then I decided to all the courses I've done on sense conditioning personal training and then we go back to a conversation we had earlier that like you only retain a very, very small amount of that. So I thought, well, actually, we need to be giving people video content. So we shot over 100 odd videos for round one. We, I created an app. So then for when people do the course, then they do, you know, they get the app, they get the book. So they've got so much takeaway material to take away with them. And then I started on round two, which was sort of more advanced sort of boxing techniques and obviously group classes, etc. And what I also decided to throw in there was anatomy and physiology. So rather than just boxing on the course, you need to sort of understand about energy systems, anatomy and physiology, because most boxing coaches, from my experience, have never done a, a personal training course or anatomy and physiology course. They, 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 they've just got the experience from fighting, from you know martial arts or from boxing. And I just thought it's, it's really imperative that people understand how the body works because when you understand how the body works, 
you're going to be a better coach. So I threw in round one basic sort of anatomy and physiology, and then in round two, sort of like periodization and planes of motion. So to try and sort of advance people's knowledge, not just in boxing, but actually in the way the body works and some mind sort of exercises in there. So, so that's why I sort of, sort of <laughs> I threw myself into that and, and sort of strategically make it up into something really special. So, yeah, that, that's where sort of boxology came from. There's a lot of people coming on the course going, oh, my God, this is so much more detailed than other boxing courses that we've done. So um, it would give me sort of like a, a push to even just get it better. So now, obviously, we're trying to get it online. And I didn't really want to go online with the course to be fair, um, because I really feel human interaction is important, coming from like therapy and et cetera. But obviously it's the way the industry's going and um, we have to sort of go with the flow, um, just try and find a way to sort of still have that human interaction as well as the online training. But one of the other things we did with Boxology was uh, last year we went to Iraq with Boxology and um, I was approached by a charity called the Lotus Flower Charity, and they um, look after women and, and young girls who were raped and pillaged so badly in 2014 when ISIS came through uh, Iraq, and they were they were shunted into the mountains, and then and the Iraqi government sort of set them up these camps in the mountains in the end, and they all live in these tents. It's like the camp we went to it was 15,000 people, wow. like men and women in, in this camp and it, you know, they, they, they live in tents basically and sleep on the floor and they've been there for five years and the Lotus Flowers um, set up an initiative called Boxing Sisters and they um, they basically wanted to teach women how to sort of box to sort of feel good about themselves and the founder sort of approached me and said, look, you know, would you be interested in doing something? And I said, oh, absolutely. And she told me the story about, you know, there was a couple of young girls who, well, especially one had been raped and abused so badly by these ISIS soldiers that she'd sort of, they'd broken her, her pelvis and her back. And, you know, she was gang raped over and over and over again. And that just, obviously, from my abusive relationship that I was in when I was younger, and obviously how boxing has helped me, I just, it became, it seemed like a natural relationship to happen. And it was something that I felt that it was right to do. Poor Greg, um, I said, right, we're going to Iraq. He didn't really have a choice in the matter. So I was like, what? (laughs) So we flew to Iraq in um, last year and it was one of the best projects I've ever done in my entire life. What I got from that, from helping these women was, was huge. So what we did was we, we set up a, a class in the morning where we trained like a, a 15, about 15 girls. And they were there every single morning waiting for us at nine o'clock. And then in the afternoon, we the charity chose three women. And those three women, we trained up to be boxing coaches, very basic. But we ran the boxology course. It was an adapted boxology course in Iraq every afternoon for about eight days. And we taught these three women how to teach, teach boxing and obviously we had to adapt the course we kind of amalgamated a little bit of round two and round one yeah. for like the uppercuts and stuff like that just to sort of keep it so they had we could leave them with a tool to go we could go away and leave them self-sufficient and we really make sure that they you know we had to get a translator in obviously none of them spoke english we had an arabic translator who would write everything on the whiteboard that we were like 
possible. If you say, look at the jab, for example, you break the jab down into sort of lots and lots of sections. It's not just going, this is how you jab. This is why you jab like this. And these are the these are the actual techniques and the cue points that you need. So she, the translator was writing everything in Arabic that we were telling at the putting points. And then there was a couple of women who couldn't um, read or write. So we had to do audio notes in Arabic and then we filmed it for them. And we kind of really had to adapt our coaching style. And this is where it goes back to sort of being able to, to, to adapt the way you speak to people and the way you coach every individual has to be totally different. Yeah. So you've got there, we've got like 15 women who none of them speak English. And we had the most brilliant time. Like the women were beautiful. They cooked for us every day. They really were so welcoming. They read they, and and actually and our, the sit, the people sitting in that course, the three women that sat in the course, were so much more responsive than people who do our courses in the UK. It's mm. a, a, their passion for learning was so much, which so much stronger than anyone who does our classes in the UK. Fact, and like a lot of the girls who were doing the classes in the morning, just wanted to sit at the back of the classroom and come back in the afternoon and just. To sit with us while we were teaching these three women, so it was. We got so much from it, and then obviously, then the charity pays the women to carry on boxing training in the camps. So one, they're getting more confidence from it. Two, they're they're feeling empowered. Three, they're, they're earning some money from from sort of like teaching the classes that they can then feed their their family. And it's just making them self sufficient. So that's the say- kind of. I was just going to say, what what kind of what's the biggest impact that it's that you you saw or you've heard since obviously returning to the UK that it's had, and I'm I'm assuming it's you know just maybe just the little things in life potentially which maybe they've been deprived of or you know haven't been able to experience because of their their living conditions and having to flee like that. Well, they can they can sort of go out and buy fresh food mm. for their for, for their family, and because a lot of them have obviously lost their husbands and their brothers and etc so they 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 they, the women have they've got to go out and they've got to look after you know aunties and and maybe uncles older uncles that are alive still and children so you know the one of the girls i mean there's i've got i'm about to put a picture on instagram me and her today she looks older than me but literally she was in her she's in her 20s but from what she's been through she's just aged her so much and she's just very, very grown up for a 20, young 20-year-old girl to have to run around and look after, like, you know, their sister's children, everybody's children, and, and they, they've got so much responsibility on their shoulders. And also it gives them something during the day that they, they've they gone out and that they've got something to look forward to. So they, yeah. it's really eased up their depression about being stuck in the tent all day because mm-hmm. they know that I'm going to go out and teach a boxing class or I'm going to do a boxing class later. And... To see them, they send us videos of them coaching um, our classes, and then we give them feedback and to sort of sort of help them be able to carry on coaching. And it's just beautiful to see that it's and it's so popular in the camp. It's not like it's dwindled off. It's it's popular every class. It's women are turning up to these boxing classes, and to see the confidence in these women, even when we were there, the one little girl who was very scared of men, for example. Um, because of what she'd been through. I mean, when obviously myself and Greg, and Greg's like six foot four giant. So, but they warmed him so much. He would, she, this one young girl only wanted to partner with Greg. Mm. 
And at the end, because she, she just got that confidence with men again, she wasn't scared of men. And to see things like that and to see sort of the difference and the smiles on their faces, it's the smiles that got me and it's the smiles that really make me feel happy of what, what we've done by going to Iraq, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess it's... Again, it, it emphasizes the power of education as well. You know, yes, you, you're doing physical activity with them. They, you know, they've got that physical outlet almost or um, opportunity to participate. But, you know, I don't think there's anything really that beats that knowledge development, self-development. Yeah. Yeah. Learning your skill is imperative. And not even just for the women in rap, but for everybody. Mm. I always say to sort of like the young PTs, like, oh, I've got to go and do this course. I'm like, Listen, if you feel like you know everything in the fitness industry, then you're a fool. Because you, I do courses. I did a, I did a um, webinar on Monday. Um, third space I put on uh, webinars um, about strength conditioning every Monday at eleven o'clock. You know, I'm sitting through that and we're doing the homework about it's about hypertrophy, which I know about because I've studied it. But you just don't know what you're going to learn. No. You know, there's new science happening and, and we're constantly evolving as humans and, and in the fitness industry. That's why Active IQ is so good because you're, you you know and you, you, you realise how courses have got to change and adapt to sort of what's happening. And, you know, they, you, you need to sort of educate yourself constantly. You can't just do a course at the beginning of career. I know so many PTs who have um, done, done courses, even like when I was doing it back in the 90s, um, and that, that's the only training they've ever, ever done. And they're still functioning as personal trainers. Mm. And I just think, personally, it's terrible. Like, why would you not want to advance your knowledge? You haven't learned everything back in the 90s. Things have changed so much and they're constantly changing knowledge. And you've got to develop and learn new skills. It makes you, and also it's good for the brain. Yeah. You know, my mum my mom had dementia and I mean, she died last year, but... Um, you know, and stuff like that you've got to be aware of. You've got to keep your brain working and learning new skills mm. and new functions. It's really important. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, we were talking before this recording, weren't we, about, you know, how, where is the place for education, self-development and all of those things that, that are encompassed within that in this present time that we're in? Um, because we see it a lot. You know, I've been not guilty of it, but um, I've been kind of, promoting it in terms of you know if you've got downtime now and i totally appreciate that many many people don't you know life has changed significantly there's all sorts of other pressures and things that we have to do which we've always taken for granted but now need a lot of planning and it's it's quite easy for us to say oh invest time in, in your self development mm. professional development and everything else and yeah great in an ideal world people would have time to sit down and invest a hour or two in in themselves each day but you know, we can't always do that. But if you have, then definitely do it. You know, who knows what you're going to learn while you we're in this, this lockdown phase and, and how that might influence what you're going to do out of the other end of it. And what what learnings or take homes are you going to have left that you're going to be able to change and manipulate the way that you currently operate or operated before COVID-19? So I think it's about finding the balance. But yeah, the power of education for me is is huge. My, you know, I've been an educator for 20 years almost um and yeah i've seen it firsthand and I, I love learning myself even if it's just watching a youtube video you know there's always something oh, to I learn love, yeah it's amazing you just learn a new skill it's, it's, yeah, and i appreciate people haven't got the time as well but yeah you've got to get a balance i mean amongst me sort of i'm at the minute i'm head down creating <laughs> boxology into ebooks at the minute 
Um, so I've learned a new skill because I've learned how to create an iBook. Yeah. And and sort of like in, with hyperlinks to every single video, so we can when people do the course rather than just them getting a like you know a Google Drive slide, they um they're getting sort of a book with interactive hyperlinks on there, and then obviously images etc. So what they can do is um they can click on that, they can click on the hyperlink, and then they can sort of see the video and stuff like that. But that's taken me ages. Yeah, I underestimated how how long that would take and how long sort of um, creating an ebook would would be because I'm doing page by page, etc. So that that's learning a new skill and it took me a long time to do that. But it it's kept me occupied. Yeah, yeah. And and but also I'm studying um, an online course with the science of Yale. Um the science of well being with Yale. Yeah. So that that basically um, just to keep just so I'm learning something or I'm doing the e- ebook but I've, I'm committed to two hours a week to doing sort of like to, 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 to doing that and I mean the two hours a week is nothing um, really in the grand scheme of things and I'll sit for two hours a week and listen to the lectures on Yale and on online and I'm learning something and I've got to do a little assignment and then I feel really good about myself and even if I wasn't you know, developing the ebooks even if and I had lots of kids running around and whatnot I still go like this two hours, even if I can split it up into two one hours during the week. Mm. It it I know that I'm getting a little something. You don't have to go gung ho and learn a new skill every day. You don't have to commit every day to learning something. Like, oh man, while you're locked down in COVID, but at least if you can commit to sort of something small, and then do, you can spread it out over I don't know ten weeks or so, and, and just I, I sort of put a video up at the beginning of this COVID. Going one thing you have to do is get a routine in place. Yeah. No matter where, whether you've got kids, whether you're at home on your own, whether you, you know whatever commitments you've got, you know get a routine in place, and 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 that will keep you sane because otherwise it becomes discombobulated. Everything's all up in the air, and that's where everything becomes manic. Mm. And, and so it's commit- sorry, go on. No, I was going to say it's kind of almost preparing ourselves for because it's going to be another transition for everybody. You know, when everything returns back to normal whether that is fairly quickly or over a drawn out period of time we're going to have to almost learn to go back to the way we were and a lot of the things that that we used to just expect and take for granted maybe won't be there anymore you know or won't be the way that we can operate and I guess it's fitting in with that notion of developing yourself whether that is 20 minutes a week or five hours a week it's almost how can you use that time to plan for what you might want to do once this COVID situation has passed, um, to, to, that's going to help you, you know, develop whether that's in business, personal life, whatever it might be. What learnings can you take from this? How can you use this time to, to the best effect to benefit you when all is said and done and, and we find ourselves in, in a, a new world post COVID 19? So that, that's the problem. It's, it, it, I think, as well, it's not to think about now. It's not about now, actually, what, what mm. we're setting up with Boxology being online. It's not about now. It's about actually when we go back. Because yeah. this is this my course is like the boxology course online is not going to be ready by the time we go back because we've got I need to film sixty coaching me talking to camera yeah. videos, which is going to take ages. Um, but we obviously can't do it now because we're, we're inside. I don't want to do it in my living room because that'll just look terrible. So, <laughs> so what we're doing is we're setting up for the future and what actually the future is going to hold. You know, we're speaking to sort of third space all the time and I'm watching sort of 
articles that have been put out about sort of the government allowing gyms to maybe open again. I mean, yeah. I don't think it's going to open until July. And then from then, when they are open, it's not going to be like, eh, back to normal. No. There's going to be a filter system. There's going to be a two-meter distancing thing. So there's going to be less members allowed into the gym. Yeah. There's certain classes, like boxing classes, we're going, they're not going to be able to do. At the minute, we're doing some on Zoom. Um, so, and I, you know, we, we, this is a new thing for us teaching on like Zoom and, and doing people in their living rooms. But I think what we have to do as is, is coaches is we are going to have to adapt, not for now, but for going on future wise. Because I think this is going to be going on for a long time. And, and once the gyms are open and once we are allowed to be coaching again, there's a lot of things that we're going to have to change. Because yeah. um, people are going to be paranoid for a, a little bit. Um, so I think we've got to think about it long term and and how you can sort of things that you can do now, even if it's a small bit during the week, once a week, just doing something that can just expand what you're going to be doing down the line in a year's time. Yeah, definitely. So I, I guess on that, well, looking to you're talking about, you know, post COVID, et cetera, and this return to whatever it might be. What What is next for for you in the Boxology brand and have you, what are your, have you got plans for other courses that you're developing beyond sort of round one, two, et cetera, other projects or irons in the fire? Yeah, I mean, I'm, at the minute, my, my goal is getting round one and round two online. Um, that's the first stage um, with the books and the videos and the actual courses. And then, and then we'll develop round three, which would be more um, scheduled for sort of people coming up to fight for sparring etc sort of hands-on boxing and then obviously next year we want to sort of now do more workshops and we'll probably do them online to mm. be honest um all lectures at third space where we do sort of nutrition for boxers and like specifically for boxers yeah. strength and conditioning for boxers mind like mental health for boxers and so we will do sort of smaller boxology workshops for Everything so we'll just make everything round sort of boxing, but um, so it's bespoke to rather than just go of nutrition because nutrition for boxers is different from nutrition for bodybuilders, for example. Because yeah. obviously, boxers have to retain a certain amount of energy and got to fight over maybe a few rounds because you know they, they can't be depleted of water and diet, etc. And I touch on it very, very briefly in the round two book and the round two course, I touch on hydration and diet. But we're not. I'm a not. I'm not a dietitian or a nutritionist. So what we would do on on the the sort of diet front would be to get an external nutritionist in for nutrition for boxing, and we'll obviously under the Boxology logo, and then we'll do workshops mm-hmm. um, on that. And I think that's really important to do that. It's knowing your skill set. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, I know enough about diets to keep people healthy, but. I think for um, to to make sort of the lectures for boxology even even stronger is to get a, a really good nutritionist in and same with strength and condition. Even though I'm, me and Greg are both qualified strength and condition coaches and we, we do do that, I'd get somewhere else in to, to do to do uh, a workshop. Maybe you know Phil Learney or someone like that mm. on the nutrition side because um, oh, I've got a, a good relationship with Phil Learney and you know just just paying someone external to come and do it yeah and it, you know it adds depth and breadth to you to your team um to your offer and yeah, yeah. I, I think it's great when you bring other people in and 
to the kind of whole teaching and, and learning experience. It's they bring different perspectives, different views, and sometimes you know little gems and nuggets. Which yes, you can have a whole course content syllabus and everything else, but for me, a lot of the time, you know, it's those little gems that you can take away that from a certain person's experience or a top tip, which can just really make the change if you start just flicking that switch or applying it in some way. Um, for me, yeah, I love those those little nuggets that you can take away. Yeah, they're really important. And I think rather than us just, just doing it ourselves, it's it just pay someone to come in and obviously we're there and, and we, we generate sort of everybody to come and it just gives it gives us sort of a more of a knowledge base for sort of people who are coaching boxing. Mm. Um, yeah. So I'm trying to work sort of strongly with the British Boxing Board of Control as well on that aspect. That sounds exciting. Yeah, so it's good. So it's kind of like, Oh, panic! There's not enough time in the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I feel you there. Okay, so brilliant. Well, we've hit that just over the hour mark, and your time is very precious. So we should probably look at wrapping this up. But for anybody who's interested in learning more about boxology and and you, your background, where where can they go to? Where can we signpost them to? Well, you've got um, my website, which is kathybrown.co.uk. Kathy with a C. Um, just in case everyone starts with a K, it drives me mad. And, um, or, <laughs> or you've got Boxology.academy, which is our website for that, which, which gives you all the information on the courses. But obviously Instagram as well, Kathy Brown Boxer, and at Boxology Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Wow, that's a, a plethora of social media channels you've got there to manage. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot to manage. I could imagine, I could imagine. Okay, well... Like I said, your time is precious. I'm sure you've got lots of other things to do. You've got, you've got ebooks to write and iBooks, etc. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> and <Yeah>. some videos <laughs> to, to go and build. But it's been really great talking to you, um, Kathy, and listening to your kind of story and where you're at now and your charity work and j- just saying Atlantic as well, things like that. Maybe uh-huh. that people yeah. didn't know about you. But yeah, it's been fantastic. And I, I've really enjoyed it. And hopefully our listeners will too. And Oh, good, means, I hope so. Yeah, if we can catch up again and maybe look at, like I said, the CBT stuff, that would be fantastic. Mm, absolutely, definitely. Oh, grand. All right. Well, I shall bid you good day and um, safe exit out of this current time that we find ourselves in. Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we'll catch up again really soon. All right, then. Excellent. Thank you very much, James. No problem. Thanks for your time, Kathy. Really appreciate it. Okay. Take care. Bye.